medical authority shapes everything that people know about fatness mm-hmm. because of the way that fatness is medicalized. And so it's not just about care denial. It's about a belief that gets funneled into all other areas of life. And that means that there is no domain that is just safe for fat people. Like we, there is no domain that is unaffected by medical fat phobia. Support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I have two great guests here today to help me discuss some newly released guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics that recommend early and aggressive medical intervention for fat kids. These guidelines are pretty horrible. So I asked two of my favorite fat liberationists who also happen to study public health onto the show to help me give these so-called evidence-based guidelines the full death panel treatment and join me for a conversation just sort of generally about how much our current political economy of health is invested in anti-fatness. So my first guest is Mikey Mercedes. Mikey is a writer, creator, and doctoral student from the Bronx, New York. As a presidential fellow at the Brown University School of Public Health, she works at the intersection of critical public health studies, fat studies, and scholarship on racism, examining how racism, anti-blackness, and fat phobia have shaped healthcare, research, and public health. Mikey is also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Unsolicited Fatties Talk Back. Mikey, welcome to the death panel. Thank you so much for having me. This is like definitely the most excited I've been to be on a death panel. Oh my gosh. Super hype. So happy to have you. And my second guest is Monica Creedy. Monica is a public health communicator and strategist who studies anti-fatness in healthcare and public health and advocates for addressing the structural determinants of health through widespread social change. She provides training and technical assistance to help clinicians, policymakers, and researchers understand the flaws of weight-centric health systems and imagine fat-positive healthcare and health policy. Monica, welcome to the death panel. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's honestly so wonderful to have you both on. I have learned so much from you over the last few years, and I'm grateful that you guys agreed to join me to help contextualize and then tear down these new American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, which came out and and basically kind of like overturned decades of the norm in pediatric care in the United States being a practice called watchful waiting, or basically like delaying recommending medicalizing fatness until young adulthood, which was not without its problems, but this was just a pretty drastic pivot for the guidelines and recommendations is sort of what I mean. So in early January of this year, the American Academy of Pediatrics released this new set of clinical guidelines, which is full of very dangerous recommendations for how doctors should now approach the care of children medicalized as overweight, including 
recommending intentional weight loss for children via intensive health, behavioral, and lifestyle training starting as early as age two, off-label prescription weight loss therapy as young as 12, and surgery as early as age 13. And one of the reasons I really wanted to have you both on among many great fat liberationists that I follow is specifically because both of you have extensive embodied and formal you know, academy-sanctioned expertise when it comes to understanding the specific intersection of physician norms and medical anti-fatness. So before we get into the heinous new guidelines themselves, first, I'd love if each of you could take a moment to just sort of explain your approach to fat liberation to our listeners, what fat liberation really means as a praxis or principle for you? And also, can you both talk about how you've brought that then into your work in public health? So maybe, Mikey, I'd say your work really focuses on medical racism, anti-fatness, and provider-patient interactions, which is such a crucial perspective in the context of these guidelines. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, my journey to fat liberation or just fat politics in general really started with the disability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I came into my PhD program thinking that I was going to study uh, racial disparities in HIV among like aging black people. Like that's what I thought I was going to do. And then like a month and a half into my program, at which point I was already like thoroughly disillusioned <laughs> with what public health was <laughs> and how it was structured. I woke up one morning and I was just like unable to get up. And like, that was the first instance of what has been, you know, a years long chronic issue with my mobility. And, you know, I think that grappling with my internalized ableism, because at that point I hadn't really experienced physical limitations due to my fatness. And, you know, I still haven't, my issue is more complex than that, but I think having to re-understand what it meant to be fat Mm -hmm. in my body really pushed me to consider what fatness even was at all. And so that's sort of where I, where I think my, my fat politic really started to bloom. And then when I was like, well, you know, I want to, I want to learn more about how meanings about fatness in the world impact how people experience healthcare. Because I think that one of the primary means by which fat phobia harms fat people and communities is, you know, that occurs in the clinical setting. We experience either just full-fledged dismissal of our concerns, we're handled roughly, weight loss is sort of a, it's this prerequisite to a basic standard of care. And it's something that basically every fat person, whether, you know, you grew up fat and have always been fat or became fat later on in life, you know, everybody has experienced this kind of medical dismissal and marginalization. And yeah, and that's why I really wanted to center that in my work, particularly because if we understand medical racism, which which has, you know, received, I think, increased attention in the past few years for reasons that may or may not be entirely like altruistic (laughs) or justice oriented. I think that people don't really understand how fat phobia layers onto or sort of interacts with medical racism to give rise to this whole other genre of medical interactions that black fat people are forced to sort of navigate 
through. And yeah, so that's that's where that's where I am. Um, and that's what I that's why I do that's why I do my stuff. I do my I do my little dance. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And I think that what's really telling about the way you were sort of framing your approach is the kind of experience of when you're dealing with kind of seeking out any kind of diagnosis or answers or just someone to investigate a a long-term or a health problem that's becoming chronic, there's an additional layer of administrative burden that's very much put into place by the architecture of medical authority that's going to dictate that fat folks are going to have to jump through extra hoops to get clinicians to pay attention to the sort of actual processes of disease or whatever that they're trying to draw attention to because there's always going to be this lens that sort of sits in between the provider and the patient that's going to direct the patient by their training to sort of look to trying to address the patient's fatness first. And folks really have to push through so much of that structural barrier that it really kind of, I think, is one of the best ways to start considering and talking about what we really mean when we say healthcare access, because simply doing something like, you know, I'm going to totally just sort of uh, give everyone single payer and like, yes, that helps in some ways, but that's not going to address medical racism. It's not going to address medicalized anti-fatness, and it's not going to address the way that sort of fatness is used as a mediator and a way to cover for the austerity of our system, ultimately, which I guess kind of also brings me now, Monica, to your work. Thank you so much, Mikey. Monica, your work is also super relevant to discussing these guidelines. Can you also talk about your approach to fat liberation and sort of how you bring that into public health? Sure. I came to fat liberation around the turn of the 2010s when I was a college student. I found the fat feminist white lady blogs. Um, And then from there, I found, you know, like the rest of the white feminist blogosphere. And then I started finding black feminist bloggers and tweeters who I learned a lot from. And it kind of collided with my undergraduate education where I majored in biochemistry because I really enjoyed the theoretical side of the sciences. And it turned out that I had no physical aptitude for being in a lab um, like dramatically and comically, um, like couldn't get a thing to work, breaking glassware all the time. And going into my senior year, I had this brainwave of like, oh, wait, like gender studies is a thing. I, instead of just reading Jezebel while I wait for the mass spec to run, like I could write (laughs) about this and get credit for it. Um, so I graduated then with a degree in biochemistry with a minor in gender studies. And it's like, what on earth do you do with that? Like what's in the middle of that Venn diagram? Like, I guess it's public health and decided to go to grad school. And so, and when I did decide to go, I was like, well, if I'm going to go, I have to really do it. I have to really go all in on fat politics Mm -hmm. um, if I'm going to really go to this place. And so I showed up with kind of the express goal of investigating weight stigma and how we talk about body size and health. And I really expected to like make no friends and influence no one. (laughs) Um, And my cohort turned out to be just like the most incredibly supportive group of people I've ever met. They were so interested. They were so encouraging. And through that encouragement, I found that the situation was much worse than I had even imagined. And that, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this more, but if you If you use the social epidemiologic approach to actually look at 
like the disease of obesity and how it's constructed, there's no there there. Mm-hmm. It's it's just pseudoscience and personal bias all the way down. And social epidemiologists are not interested in actually looking at that. They're interested in continuing to use obesity as an example and continuing to use it as an excuse to intervene on marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. And so I know, I know there is a need. I know there is interest. There are people who are really interested in learning about this. There are people who recognize that the current paradigm is harmful and want to make changes and really don't know how, mm-hmm. and really don't know how to even like interpret the information that they're looking at or make sense of it because the cognitive dissonance, when you realize how bad it is, is really profound. It's really, really difficult to realize that a huge chunk of the training that you've done has been just in how to hurt people. Yeah. Um, and so I've been, you know, I studied communication, I studied social epi, and I've been kind of on my own trying to organize among fat people, trying to write and sharing a lot on social media, because that's sort of what I've had the capacity and the ability for, especially through the pandemic. And so now, like, I guess I'm a micro influencer and I have like 12,000 <laughs> followers on Twitter. Um, and like, like, arguably, that's what I'm the most successful at. So, yeah, that's my work, I guess. Did that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, I think thank you both so much for that. I think, you know, just sort of considering the scope of our topic today, we're going to address these guidelines. Monica, as you're saying, the kind of medical construction of fatness, the disease of obesity, this is a really kind of empty and hollow surface level category of medical thought, right? That doesn't have a lot mm-hmm. of support, actually. And so, you know, one thing I do want to sort of talk about before we get into These allegedly evidence-based guidelines recommending weight loss interventions on children as young as two, (laughs) gosh, it just makes me so frustrated to say that, but I'm going to save it for when we get into that part. You know, (laughs) Um, I'd love if we could just pause for a second, especially because we all know these ideas operate at that really sort of gross, harmful level that we hate here on Death Panel, which is the kind of like health policy common sense register, you know, both clinical and popular ideas just out in the culture about quote-unquote obesity are so insidious and harmful that I think there are a few things that we should just address and make sure there's some common ground on before we proceed. And I hate to have to ask you both to sort of do this, but I do think it's important we retread some of the basics here for listeners who might be new to this. Um, So for the sake of time, I'm going to limit the scope to just specifically kind of talking about like medical anti-fatness today, because that's what we're about to break down for listeners in a moment. But I want to be clear that any of the stuff that we're going to talk about is not unique to medicalization or medical practice or medical education. And this is something that really kind of reverberates all over the place. Um, But that's the context we're talking about it in today. So Mikey, maybe do you think you could start us off on this one? Would you mind talking um, sort of just briefly from the perspective of like maybe someone who's new to thinking through how fatness kind of as a concept factors into the construction of like who a bad patient is 
and how that has a specific tie-in to the kind of way that medical racism is not only acted out, but becomes exponentially harmful when it starts to intersect with other things like anti-fatness, like, uh, you know, attitudes about disability or ideas about um, anything having to do with mobility and quality of life. Would you sort of start by talking about this kind of idea of medical anti-fatness and how it relates to medical racism? Absolutely. Um, You know, I always like to clarify for people because people understand, and especially among people in the academy who formally study weight stigma, whether that's in, but even the term weight stigma, right? Like the term itself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. Right. They're, they are mostly concerned with fat phobia as the, you know, symbolic or thought based, like negative associations that people have with fatness. So they're like, oh, this is bad. And the way it primarily functions is through, you know, doctors thinking that fat people are, quote unquote, stupid, lazy, that they are noncompliant, blah, blah, blah. But the reality of fat phobia and especially the reality of medical fat phobia is that it is (laughs) it is the manifestation and mobilization of stigma on several different levels. And that's that's including, you know, the belief or thought based, you know, negative associations, as well as much broader systems of medical practice and training, as well as insurance policies, Mm -hmm. as well as national policy that uses medical authority and scientific legitimation to do these more broad and scoping interventions on community and population levels. So this is very, very broad and very scoping and has many different manifestations. And it's not just about what doctors think about fat people. You know, this is much bigger than that. And so if we're talking about it as something that manifests at multiple levels, this is the concerted effort of multiple systems and practices and norms that dictate what's going to happen to fat patients, especially we're talking about fat black patients. Mm -hmm. What is going to happen in the clinical setting is already like very predetermined. You know, there, there isn't, there, there isn't what people think of as like a very thoughtful um, clinical decision-making process in which doctors consider the whole of the factors of, you know, a person's quote unquote health, you know, whatever that means. And usually in the clinical setting, it's like, it's weight just as its own concept because weight is already assumed to be, yeah, you know, this reflection of health behaviors and also reflection of health risks. Um, so weight on its own is already sort of this, this self-contained thing. But then like when you place it in the context of the clinical interaction, that determines on its by itself what the conversation is going to be and what the what the grounds of treatment are going to be moving forward. So when I as a fat black person walk into the clinical space, you know, except, you know, this doesn't happen to me anymore because I have a fantastic fat inclusive provider, which is awesome. Um, It's first time in my life experiencing that. But um, few and far between, though. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. We can talk about this later if we have time. But yeah, very hard to find one and definitely not the dorm. And now that I've experienced what actual like good healthcare is, I'm like, wow, this is what I've been living without. <laughs> um, very interesting to 
understand that in retrospect. But, um, you know, in the past, when I've walked into clinical interactions, uh, the the mention and scolding related to my weight was a definite. You know, it was not something that maybe would come up, not something that could possibly come up. It was already predetermined as part of the interaction that I was going to have. And that certainty is like amplified in the case of people who are fat and black, because there is this very specific melding. And I think that it's it's all throughout this this like AAP guideline Mm -hmm. thing of, you know, black people being exposed to, quote unquote, social determinants of health that inherently link them to fatness like the the very specific context of like a culturally relevant or culturally specific or culturally humble medical clinical interaction in terms of weight is like such a specific thing it's like we understand that you're fat but we understand that this is quote unquote partly the result of the things that you experience like blackness and racism and food deserts and <laughs> Monica knows how much I hate the concept of food deserts. So, like <laughs> I, I can only imagine like what she's thinking right now because she understands how much I hate this because it's a very specific racialization of socially determinally aware obesity you know mm-hmm. etiology and existence so like it's it's just it's just very much like a specific kind of racism mm-hmm. that co-ops health equity and sdoh or social determinants of health language that makes fatness into an issue of equity that makes fatness as an example of racism mm-hmm and it's so fucking insidious. <laughs> um, and I think it's especially it was especially prevalent in in my childhood because my my mother is black, but she is also a black immigrant. And there's all kinds of conversations we could have about, um, you know, citizenship and personhood in a state that hates fatness in part because of how it prevents us from taking people to serve in the military. Like there's all these kinds of like associations with fatness as like a threat to the state, Mm -hmm. as a threat to the government, as a threat to the concept of America and freedom and liberty and all those things. And like when you are fat and black and also your caretakers are not white, not of this country, you know, like, it's it's this very specific meld of like we are fighting against everything you embody because it is a threat to our our lives, our existence, our prosperity as not just communities, but like as a nation. So there's like a lot of weird shit <laughs> that gets manifested in clinical interactions that like fat patients have to endure in order to maybe possibly receive a semblance of care. And and I'll, I'm going to rail about this a little bit more later, I'm sure. But like <laughs> this very specific, it. yes, this very specific genre of like, we have to think of obesity as a health equity issue because it happens to be more prevalent in people who are not white is like so fucking insidious. And Monica really touched on this when she was talking about how she got to this work, but like public health has a very limited understanding of what a disparity is and what equity is. And it basically boils down to 
taking the things that marginalized groups are more likely to have, like sickness, like death, as a result of their oppression in society and making it exist in the scope of the clinical, of individual health behaviors and choices. And it is so, it's fucking gross. Like whenever I come across it, which is very often, like it makes me physically ill because it's such a bastardization of what equity looks like and how it actually functions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, the, the sum of what I'm saying is there's a lot of fuck shit going on (laughs) between people who claim to be fighting on behalf of marginalized communities and like the actual things that they are aiming to do, Mm -hmm. which boils down to an elimination campaign. And there's, there's no, there's no real way around that. Mm -hmm. Like when you target a group, uh, whether that's by, you know, the medical implications of their existence, which we could talk a lot about what that even means, or just like in terms of racial or social or citizen contagion, there's just a lot there. And, you know, we've had a lot of people at this point would mention like Sabrina Strings is fearing the black body, which, you know, provides like a historical analysis of how fat phobia sort of emerged out of race science that was utilized to justify, you know, the chattel slavery of black people. And like, I think that's a very important um, angle to this conversation because if we don't understand that anti-fatness comes out of anti-blackness, then we sort of end up having these race agnostic or colorblind conversations of how fat phobia functions, which misses, you know, the angles of the health disparities conversation or the food deserts conversation. Like it misses all of these very important dimensions of how fat phobia works that specifically targets black, poor, fat people. And yeah, so I think that's a that's an important thing to mention, too. But I also think that the landscape of how race functions as like this capital to speak on the medicalization of people's bodies, like there is a lot that people can pretend to do in the name of equity. Yeah. And that's like such a dangerous thing that I also really want to call attention to because it's like if our society is increasingly becoming conscious of the impacts and existence of systemic racism and anti-Blackness, then what does it mean for people who are willing to use those injustices to further the medical oppression of very specific groups. And it's, it's fat people, it's disabled people, it's people who are both fat and disabled. It's people who are poor. It's people who are mad, you know, it's, it, it all coalesces into this very dangerous eugenics project. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that actually kind of brings me to the thing I was going to ask Monica, if you wanted to build on, which is to sort of connect the idea of medicalizing fatness and the kind of measurement of fatness and the study of fatness into the kind of legacy of eugenics, actually, and this idea of constructing the perfect healthy body politic, the perfect body politic full of only earning, working, productive, tax-paying straight people who are, you know, either white or white aspiring is usually how the, the eugenicists sort of Um, thought of this because this was them kind of taking an idea about race and class dominance that 
they lived and trying to make the case that this was actually the law of nature and just how society is meant to be and trying to sort of create um, scientific methods in order to support that hypothesis. And now, obviously, you know, this is one of Abby's favorite topics, the ways that sort of um, the statistical study of health at the population level has such deep roots into eugenic ideology. But I wonder if you want to build on, you know, Mikey's fantastic unpacking there and sort of talk a little bit about sort of anti-fatness, the medicalization of fatness and eugenics for a sec. Yeah. Um, it's so hard to even know where to begin. Um, I know. That's why I apologize for having it. <laughs> and it's like, I guess, right. It's like, I guess we could start, right. Like we can always start with Quetelet, but it's, it's almost like less about the math for me and more about the orientation behind the math and you know there was there was the push the expectation that you could define what a regular person was like the idea of normality and the idea of health have become the same idea yes mm-hmm. yeah. right that 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 being regular or average or exactly in the middle is like superior to being different or unique in any way And I mean, what I can talk about is like how fatness is defined as a disease and how when we define fatness as a disease, we turn health into an aesthetic consideration that like fatness is a disease. So every person has the fat person disease. The Mm. symptom of the fat person disease is that you are fat and the cure for the fat person disease is to become not fat. Yeah. And that's the whole entirety of the fat person disease, obesity. You know, if you read about it, you will come across the phrase, obesity is a complex chronic disease. There's usually not a citation. If there is a citation, it usually goes to like a CDC webpage, not a scientific publication. And that assertion that fatness is a disease really comes out of this, this random Belgian guy (laughs) trying to ascertain like the statistical distribution of body mass in a population Mm -hmm. and then you know the the bell curve which was descriptive becomes prescriptive you have insurance agents noticing that like fat people have a slightly higher risk of death in some circumstances and that becomes how do we charge people more money for this and then you have Ansel Keys in the 70s saying well, black and Jewish people are fat and that's ugly. Let's make BMI a thing. Um, and that's that's a very, very flippant summary. But if you go to fearing the black body, yeah. it's not an inaccurate summary. <laughs> <laughs> you know what she just made me think of? Like, because medicine and public health is really preoccupied with like what a normal person looks like. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. that always brings me back to the idea of like generalizability of research for some reason. Like I always go back to the, you know, like I'm I've been taught multiple times and it's been reiterated and re-reiterated about like research that is generalizable is better. You know, Mm -hmm. like research that is generalizable is of higher quality research that is generalizable. More valuable. 
it's more valuable <laughs> and like this very particular language of like validity where it's like we can we can more strongly trust the conclusions that are drawn in these studies if they're generalizable and so that is like so fucking <laughs> keep cursing oh my god i'm so sorry oh it's you like- can curse all you want it's death panel don't worry <laughs> okay great so it's it's just like it's it's very it's very connected to this idea of sameness and the inherent pathologization of people who don't fit into that criteria for sameness. And and I think that fat phobia is like really shaped by that too. Mm -hmm. Like these people do not pile into the middle of this curve by virtue of what a curve is. That means that they're sick, but of course we only really focus on one end of that curve versus the other one. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So, and obviously like, I also love it when, oh, the fat person disease is like it, the, I love that. I, I love that like phrasing, by the way, the fat person disease, um, <laughs> the fat person disease is, it is also about like this concept of health risk, right? Like obesity is related to all of these health risks. People who are obese are at higher risk of, you know, uh, the higher blood pressure, um, other forms of morbidity and, and of course, mortality. And it's like, yes, that is the actual this. That is the only natural thing about this conversation. The natural result of marginalizing a group of people in society is sickness. Like, that's why I think it's really important when fat activists and Deshaun always Deshaun Harrison always makes a point of bringing this up at some point in like our conversations and unsolicited too. It's like anti-fatness is disabling. Mm -hmm. Like that is why people who are fat experience these higher health risks and no one in any fat liberationist space would debate that, like would counter that. I mean, there are of course some people who like practice I what I call fat politics light which is like (laughs) oh fat people can be healthy too and it's like I don't give a fuck if fat people can be healthy too I am disabled I am a disabled person I am a disabled fat black person I am the definition of unhealthy if we're talking about what how health actually is defined in society I am the exact opposite of that I don't care that fat people can be healthy fat people are sick and we're disabled and we become disabled because that is what happens when you fucking oppress people like it's like the natural result of that well it's a classic it's like a classic type a definition of the social model of disability and for listeners who have not mm-hmm. read belly of the beast you're missing out 10 i mean yeah 11 12 out of 10 would recommend it's like a must read <laughs> i got to interview Deshaun about it last year the year before mm-hmm. um love their work i mean honestly it's one of those things where I'm like, I read that book and I was like, I wish I could rewrite health communism to just like celebrate Deshaun's work over and over. But the timing <laughs> was like, we turned the manuscript in and it was like the first book I picked up. And I was like, oh, yes, my God. where was this book? <laughs> like, I love this. Right. I mean, that was like, sorry, that was like me finishing my degree, like moments before fearing the black body was published. <laughs> 
Oh my God. Monica is so bitter about this. She always mentioned, she's like, I cannot believe that I graduated before fearing the black body. <laughs> Not just before, but like right before. Right before. Yeah. Anyway. No, but like it's it it does actually kind of speak to how there is not a, a, a huge amount of like work on this, right? The vast, vast majority mm. of the kind of intellectual work product that kind of constructs this idea of fatness as a disease. I think it was Monica, as you were saying, it's just like a lot of people are really interested in just sort of like replicating or maybe it was you, Mikey, uh, replicating like the kind of existing construction that is already out there. Right. And that so you have a lot of like echoing of these ideas, right, about what health is, how we should aspire to it, what health looks like, of course. Right. And and Deshaun's work is so good because I think especially this kind of framing of intentional distance that that they really forward when they're talking about the kind of understanding of health as a anti-black idea that one that is exclusionary intentionally of people who are always as a result of racial capitalism's sort of orientation Mm -hmm. towards this kind of primary relationship of like racialized uh, and targeted extraction, like they're always already going to be unhealthy, as Deshaun writes. Like there is a kind mm-hmm. of preconditional exception. And I think when we start to think about things like, you know, the government, the Biden, uh, the, the Biden administration, the Obama administration declared war. Listen, all the administration. All of all them. The administration. Right. <laughs> and if you look back to like early coverage of the eugenics movement and, um, you know, stuff in the New York Times from the turn of the century, you start to see Oof. the beginning of this kind of real uh, kind of aspirational like lifestyle framing this uh mm-hmm. this aesthetic framing and you know people like Susan Sontag have have written about this from the perspective of like thinness being associated with class and tuberculosis and things like that but like you know this kind of actual perspective of of work like strings work like Harrison you know this is not a uh <laughs> this is like disability studies in that it's like a very kind of narrow position of which y'all mm-hmm. are the kind of the disability justice of, which is like a further narrow um, and more marginal perspective within this kind of framing. So, I mean, that's why I think it's so important to walk through these guidelines together, because essentially, as we've just been talking about this this whole time, right, like these are the kinds of structural like kind of sinews of, of anti-fatness as it exists as part of the kind of research and and medical authority construction of obesity as a disease and as a social problem that the policy apparatus needs to prioritize addressing because that's also like part of this framing too. And what's important to sort of understand about these guidelines, I think, is how they not only make these scary recommendations, right, like uh, of surgery and and pharmaceutical interventions and therapeutic, you know, talk therapy interventions and things like this and like additional surveillance, like that's all bad. What's also bad is that this is like a further calcification. This is a strengthening of all of these Mm -hmm. dynamics that we've just talked about too. I mean, beyond being full of these concerning and dangerous sort of recommendations, um, Obviously, the authors of the study had very numerous uh, undisclosed conflicts of interest. Almost every author has a career that is based in this kind of like 
higher weight is lifelong chronic illness model of medicine, which I think uh, mm. Reagan Chastain was the one who framed it that way on the blog that they do weight and healthcare. But Ugh, Reagan's wonderful. And, Reagan's well, the best. And Reagan did like Reagan's. <laughs> Reagan's one of the people who like taught me pretty much everything I know. Love their work too. Yeah. And Reagan did a great post, sort of breaking down these these conflicts of interest. Um, but you know, and they wrote of the fourteen authors who are medical doctors, eight of them took money from companies that are developing or selling some of these new weight loss drugs that are part of the recommendations. And you know, a lot of these drug makers are also big donors to the American Academy of Pediatrics. And this is not to say that like conflicts of interest are some sort of smoking gun, but I think. It's all worth mentioning in context because this is the perspective, the one that we've been critiquing this whole sort of time so far to understand where both of you are coming from and your work and sort of how you approach understanding health and fatness um, is the exact opposite from where the sort of creators of these guidelines are coming from. Is that, a, is that an unfair way of characterizing it? What I would say is that there is a disagreement about what weight stigma is. Mm -hmm. And that disagreement um, undergirds the whole conflict between fat liberationists um, and like obesity treatment doctors. So, you know, the understanding that I work from, that I think Mikey works from, that I think Reagan and other people work from is that anti-fatness, fat phobia, weight stigma, whatever you want to call it, is oppression directed toward fat people on the basis of our fatness as a physical characteristic. You mm -hmm. observe that I am fat with your eyeballs and you treat me differently. You're not learning anything medical about me when mm -hmm. you do that. Um, there is a huge effort. There is a big corporate strategy with a lot of stakeholders and a lot of people involved that is pushing to frame weight stigma as a stigma of an illness. And you see this in the guideline document itself. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see so much reiteration of this idea of fatness as a disease. So that way, treating the disease of fatness and making treatment more accessible becomes the way to address weight stigma mm -hmm. under this paradigm of believing that it's an illness issue. They should be equity. Yeah. It's not right. Right. So that's how they get to its health equity to treat people for obesity. The problem with that is that when you decide that all fat people have the fat person disease, that's the only disease we have. And we never actually get investigated for any issues. Mm -hmm. Right. Instead of instead of you are having an issue that we could ascribe to weight, but we could also look for other underlying conditions, right? Like there's no thing that happens to fat people that doesn't happen to thin people. There are things that happen to fat people more. There are not things that never happen in thin bodies. Right. And so when you have a fat person go to the doctor and get told to lose weight, that is effectively denial of care. And that mm -hmm. is how you end up you know, when we talk about anti-fatness being disabling, the mechanism is denial of care and mm -hmm. exclusion and, you know, like like sort of the structural aspects of like not being able to physically access yeah, mm -hmm. society, have a job, et cetera. Um, also allostatic load, but this sort of clinical dismissal, I think is a really big one. And so the idea of treating people for obesity 
really means providing subpar or substantially different healthcare than thin people get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing you made me think about is that like after that denial happens, after the denial of care happens, after the delay and everything, and then we die. Then it gets blamed on our fatness. That is exactly that gets used to further legitimize fat centered right. approaches to our treatment. And so that's why it's like there's this there's this endless cycle of fat people going in for care, doctors stigmatizing us, us getting sick, us dying, that being used to justify why the doctor denied us care, because obviously our death, our sickness is it it just further goes into this pipeline where it's like, well, they are actually disproportionately sick and they're all fat. So it's like, that's why we need to target the fatness part of it. And then (laughs) what happens after that, you know, or as part of that cycle is that that sort of idea about fatness being inherently, you know, inherently creating closeness to to sickness or illness then becomes something that gets ingested by the public, right? And Rachel Fox is the one who, like, I love Rachel. Love Rachel so much. Um, She's the one who, like, really made me, like, prioritize the concept that, like, medical authority shapes what people know about fatness. And then that becomes the license to abuse fat people in areas that are not clinical, mm-hmm. like that kind of medical language, the, the big campaigns about, you know, you need to drink less soda because it'll make you fat. And that, and fatness is related to X, Y, Z, like all of that feed goes into this feedback loop that isn't necessarily located in healthcare, but that other people who are outside of the domain, let's say teachers, for example, right. They internalize those thoughts and then they're like, well, this kid is fat. Fat is bad. I'm going to treat this kid differently. It's like this medical authority shapes everything that people know about fatness Mm -hmm. because of the way that fatness is medicalized. And so it's not just about care denial. It's about a belief that gets funneled into all other areas of life. And that means that there is no domain that is just safe for fat people. Like we, there is no domain that is unaffected by medical fat phobia. Right. Absolutely. No. And I, I think, you know, it's really, it's really interesting to, to think about how that kind of way that it spreads throughout and beyond the medical arena that you just mentioned, Mikey, is clearly not something that like the authors are unaware of, right? No. Um, they I, sentence one, paragraph one, page one of the executive summary reads as follows: Obesity is a common, complex, and often persistent chronic disease associated with serious health and social consequences if not treated. So, out of the gate, you know, here we have one of those first things that we've been talking about: the guidelines. They're seeking to kind of reinforce the idea of weight as disease and, you know, the more weight you have, the further away you become from health. But, you know, beyond this, they're framing this kind of chronic disease as not just like a issue of weight and weight stigma, but as having kind of like almost like a developmental 
barrier, like as a developmental barrier for children. The second paragraph goes on to say, obesity has long been stigmatized as a Mm -hmm. reversible consequence of personal choices, but has in reality complex genetic, physiologic, socioeconomic, and environmental contributors an increased understanding of the impact of social determinants of health on the chronic disease of obesity, along with heightened appreciation of the impact of the chronicity and severity of obesity-related comorbidities, has enabled broader and deeper understanding of the complexity of both obesity risk and treatment. So here's the kind of, oh my God, like, right? Like, word salad, first of all. (laughs) Second of all, I'm going to shut up in a second because I want to hear you both talk about this paragraph specifically. But, you know, this is really kind of in a lot of ways saying that the kind of a social, one of the social determinants of health is, is this kind of social disease aspect of their clinical presentation of obesity, again, in children, um, in children. They're saying, you know, all you all you people who have dubbed yourself fat police as adults, now is the time. These guidelines are also saying now is the time to also sort of police the children in your life and make sure that they're also brought into that program because this is such fatness is such a social contagion they're saying obviously i'm not saying that (laughs) we have to get them younger um and and get in there earlier uh and that a kind of recognizing the impacts of social determinants of health is going to help us get in there younger and get in there earlier and what stop the social disease from spreading throughout society like what the fuck i mean (laughs) wow jeez okay So I was having this moment. I was having the same moment. I was, I was having about, about the whole document about like, I mean, over and over. None of this makes any sense. And then we were texting Rachel Fox, who is this brilliant scholar out of UCSD. And she was telling us about a dream that she had about explaining attribution theory to some scientists. And I was like, right. Attribution theory. That makes this make sense. So attribution theory. So attribution theory is so, so right in the alternate universe where obesity doctors live, where obesity is a real disease um, that is not just a physical characteristic observed by your eyes, where there's really some kind of natural history process happening in that universe, weight stigma is caused by lack of understanding of the causes of obesity and teaching people about the causes of obesity and improving access to treatment will reduce stigma. Now, of course we know, now of course we know, of course there's like A, evidence, like a lot of studies showing that attribution theory based interventions do not work and often make weight stigma worse, Mm -hmm. which makes perfect sense if you think about it with your brain for 0.01 milliseconds. (laughs) Um, And so, so if you are living on a planet where lack of information about obesity is the problem, then publishing a 72-page document citing every single study on obesity you could possibly find makes sense. Mm-hmm. And having that document lay out all of the reasons that maybe we shouldn't be thinking of obesity as like a, a thing to intervene on, right? Because if you actually, if you actually really look at what the document says, it says, we need to ask kids to come in for like 12 hours a week and do all this stuff. And by the way, the BMI quote unquote improvement is going to be one to 3%. Yeah. Wow. So like, we're going to subject kids to all of this stuff for like very little change because like maybe 
maybe to the extent the body size is a risk factor for issues, it's not a modifiable one. Like maybe all of the evidence is saying that like, you're never really going to make a fat person thin. So what if you like thought about where that risk was actually coming from and intervened on like how nurses are cleaning or not cleaning wounds after surgery? I don't know. Just a thought. Mm -hmm. I want to emphasize something here because one of the things that I, one of the things that I really focus on are these like weight stigma interventions that get implemented in healthcare settings, specifically whether that's like to have medical students or to like providers that have, you know, passed that point in their training. Attribution theory or like the idea that like if you just tell people obesity is a multifactorial disease, like that'll make them stop hating fat people or stop thinking that we're like stupid and dumb or or we lack willpower or whatever. Uh, mind you, I'm I'm saying stupid, dumb, lacking willpower because those are like the kinds of outcomes that people evaluate in these studies. Yeah. <laughs> like that is present in every single weight stigma study. Like it is not only present, but it is like the focal point, this re-education on the causes of obesity. And we know it doesn't work because even with even with these sort of like belief based outcomes, you know, mm-hmm. of, you know, providers thinking certain things about fat people without even taking into account like actual clinical decision making. We know it doesn't work like we know it doesn't actually change any of those attitudes. Like we know that already. It's like a very well-established fact. Every single review, systematic review or narrative review or scoping review, whatever, of these studies shows it oversells their benefits, but it shows that they actually have like very small effects that are not sustained. And that isn't even talking about what doctors actually decide, you know, on the basis of these beliefs. So like we already know that attribution theory does not work. And we know that attribution theory, especially like is not something that impacts the negative things that providers think about fat people. But we continue in the scholarship and in and in recommendations like these to act as if it does work, as if it is a thing that actually works because it doesn't. As someone who has been so fucking knee deep in this literature for like two goddamn years, it doesn't work. There isn't a single one that has actually worked to do anything that is of clinical relevance to fat people. And but that hasn't stopped, you know, guidelines like this falling back on the idea that understanding the causes of something means that you're actually getting at the root of why people hate people with that thing. Obviously, this idea about causation is just part of the medicalization of obesity, but there is an intentional and forced ignorance about that. That is honestly just like so frustrating. And and this also like this kind of like forced ignorance is present in other kinds of narratives about fatness. Like what, like for example, when we talk about risk in relation to obesity, mm-hmm. like there is risk. It's like, like I said before, yes, the risks are the natural result of marginalization, of depriving people of personhood, of depriving people of respect, of depriving people from social relationships, of depriving people from cures for other things that they have that are ignored because of their fatness. That is the result. Or even diagnoses. Or even diagnoses or the result of paying people less, of like putting up all of these roadblocks to formal educational attainment. 
like there are there are so many obvious pathways from the medicalization of of fatness specifically to negative health outcomes. But we are just supposed to pretend as if those either don't exist or or as if they are just things that exacerbate like a a legitimate physiological process of illness, which is just not fucking present. (laughs) (laughs) I've tried to explain this to people so many times, like in classes and things. Some people get it and some people are like, but it's related to like like high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. And I'm like, that's what I'm fucking explaining to you. Stigma is not just this like complementary topic to disease. It is a fundamental cause of negative health outcomes. So that's just like the thing that I wanted to, to bring up because Monica made me think of it. And it's just like absolutely frustrating that we're just supposed to disregard most of the things we know about fatness in favor of the things that work for these kinds of agendas. No, I really appreciate uh, us going there because it actually kind of brings me to the next kind of main idea from these recommendations I wanted to bring in. So brace yourselves. We're getting more gross here. Um, (laughs) This is the idea that these kinds of like bullshit, they don't work, kind of appropriative, terrible ideas for interventions. The kind of let's fix the stigma of medicalization with more medicalization younger. Um, This is also within these guidelines framed as not only a solution to weight stigma, but like preventative Mm -hmm. treatment. Um, So I'm going to give an example again from the executive summary of the uh, clinical practice guideline for the evaluation and treatment of children and adolescents with obesity. So they say, quote, Individuals with overweight and obesity experience weight stigma and weight-based victimization, teasing, and bullying. This experience contributes, causality again, to, to this experience <coughs> contributes to binge eating, social isolation, oh god, I hate having to read this out loud, avoidance <laughs> of healthcare services, avoidance, avoidance. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? God. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Why should I? Go pay a copay to get told nothing and waste my time. That's the thing. Avoid okay, it. so let's talk about it. Sorry, sorry. Okay, wait. Yes. I didn't. I did not mean to interrupt and direct. No, 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 no. We'll circle back to this quote. I couldn't finish it. I need a beat, be anyways, and I want to. I want to hear this rant. So no, please. but avoidance plays such a specific role in the obesity studies, obesity stigma world. Mm-hmm. And and it's so weird because, you know, like, you know how people avoid getting hit by cars like we don't call that car avoidance. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if you know something, if you know something is going to be if you know something is going to hurt you, avoiding it is a really adaptive and rational thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not even it's just like the it, again, I keep using the word natural, but like. It's just like the very natural result of knowing that something is going to suck. Like not and it's not and not just suck in a way that's like, oh, no, this is going to be like really awkward to have to talk about my weight because that that's also like the kind of that's also the kind of idea that they like to promote, like in their discussions of avoidance. Like they think that it's just the fact that talking about weight is uncomfortable or that it reminds people of how bad their fatness is. They think that that is (laughs) 
the end all be all of avoidance in these situations when like I avoided going like I, I wrote about this in um, pipe wrench, but like mm-hmm. I obviously avoided going back to an OBGYN because of intense medical trauma. I have avoided going to doctors because the result of me going to the doctor is like an exacerbation of my eating disorders. Like it's not just awkwardness that we're working through. It's that the in the weeks leading up to an appointment, I have to I, I have to struggle with the impulse to not eat to like lose weight in an extreme and dangerous way so that potentially the degree to which I'm being stigmatized and by stigmatized, I mean, having violence enacted on me through denial by your doctor. Yes. Yeah. Like, because I have to grapple with that, you know, like there are, there are these like risks aside from just the emotional, like limits of awkwardness. Like, this is not about awkwardness. This is this is not about self-consciousness. This isn't even totally about body image. Like, even even though like these, even though like I've spoken just now about like my eating disorders, it's not really about body image. It's it's a it's a deliberate and legitimate attempt at avoiding being less than once again. You mm-hmm. know, like it is <laughs> it it's it's a means of protection. And that's why I fucking despise how these people employ the concept of avoidance it's because like that avoidance is also used to further medicalize us because they're just like oh well fat people are avoiding treatments and stuff and like that adds to how their irresponsibility with regard to their body sort of makes them sick and it's and it all goes back to this like idea like i remember that that sentence you read like obesity has long been stigmatized as a reversible consequence of personal choices but has Mm -hmm. in reality complex genetic blah 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 like it's all still being discussed as a consequence of personal choices like avoidance helps further that um the way they employ avoidance is a deliberate like attempt at furthering the idea that obesity is the result of personal choices that can be amended and that's why all of these all of the the interventions for obesity are centered around, you know, eating and exercise choices that you have to make actions that you have to do. Like it's all about personal choices, even if even if you pay lip service to the quote unquote complex genetic, physiologic, socioeconomic and environmental contributors. Just because you said that those things are important doesn't mean that you're actually factoring them into your guidelines, that you're actually factoring into factoring those things into how you treat fat people. And right. yeah, it's just it's just maddening. Um Medicine and and public health, especially, they like to pretend like they're not areas of like political functioning, like that there's no kind of agenda (laughs) there whatsoever. But it's like once you even pay two seconds of attention to the way these things are written and the the goals of these kinds of guidelines, like it becomes very clear. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think also this this kind of framing of avoidance, I find so insulting in the sense of like it reduces the capacity for like possible feelings like the range (laughs) of possible feelings conceptualized within the idea of like avoidance of healthcare services is one only of like guilt right so like it reduces the kind of fat experience of of medicalization down to 
that same misunderstanding of the kind of causality. Like it it literalizes mm-hmm. the choice in the kind of philosophical way of conceptualizing the way that people are even, you know, able to even feel as a result mm-hmm. of this thing they're trying to describe. And yes. the fact that people think it's like so innocuous to use terms like this and they're like, oh, it's just jargon. And you're like, no, that jargon fucking hurts. That hurts a yeah. lot. You know, it's also it's not just that it hurts. It's that it impedes the user's ability mm-hmm. to understand the phenomenon they purport to be studying. Yeah. It's not just that fat people are angry. It's that the medical industrial complex is wrong. Yes. <laughs> right. And yeah. like, it's not it's also similarly like it's not a tone problem. It's a content problem. It's not a language problem. It's not that they're not telling fat people, right? It's not that they're not telling people to lose weight nicely enough. It's not that they're not being understanding when they say you should have less food. It's that you're telling people, a child, you're telling a child, you should have less food. You deserve less food. You're telling a child, you need to move your body because of how your body looks. Um, and, you know, B, you had hammered on the novelty of this earlier and you had you had made it a point to say that this is a reversal from what the guidance had been previously. Um, but it's extremely in line with what I experienced as a 90s kid. Every time I went to the pediatrician, it was all these questions about what you're eating and how you're moving. And like, no investigation of actual obvious issues, including when mm-hmm. my mom would be like, should we talk about this? And they were like, no, just lose weight. Right. Well, I think it's it's like a rebrand. It really is, because I, I was just about to read the part where they're kind of setting themselves as being like, well, we're the very opposite of all these <laughs> old recommendations. And it's couched in this idea of like this also being like a big move that they're making out of some sort of compassion towards this idea of like the mission of prevention, you know, which is, I think, such an important concept for us to engage in here. Because as you're saying, Monica, like it's not like these ideas were absence from like the clinical experience. So if we think about how these people are framing this also as being somehow different from the past experience, and again, this whole thing is like about compassion and intervention and equity, you know, we're seeing one of the most kind of classic iterations of how the kind of idea of like the appropriation of, of social determinants of health is, is weaponized. So often it's it's just it hits every hallmark of a kind of perfect example of of this kind of phenomenon, which is it's so hard to watch. I mean, I'm going to try and get through these two paragraphs um, just to sort of give listeners some context in the text about sort of what we're talking about here. So the the first quote that I was trying to read earlier was, uh, individuals with overweight and obesity experience weight stigma and weight-based victimization, teasing, and bullying. This experience contributes to binge eating, social isolation, avoidance of healthcare services, and decreased physical activity, further complicating the health trajectory. And then a little later in the summary, Oh, and Monica, this speaks to your point also. Uh, There is no evidence to support either watchful waiting or unnecessary delay of appropriate treatment of children with obesity. Multiple studies have demonstrated that although obesity and self-guided dieting place children at high risk for weight fluctuation 
and disordered eating patterns, participation in structured, supervised weight management programs decreases current and future eating disorder symptoms up to six years after treatment. (laughs) You say so. I mean, talk about... A lot of like we're just blatantly lying now. Like we're just like, are we are we acting uh, as if just because disordered eating behaviors are institutionalized and formalized in a in a in a structured program that it's somehow not disordered eating? Like, are is that what we're really pretending? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think so. I I think it does sound that way. <laughs> so this has been a long time industry talking point though the idea that the life course approach and the idea of early intervention you know monica Mm -hmm. as you're saying this is like your experience as a child at the pediatrician it's quite well documented that this is a pretty broad approach to how already so many people were interacting with kids like it's not like kids have been magically free from this for so long and i think that's what's so interesting almost about these recommendations is they're all almost rewriting history. It makes me think of my co-host Jules Gil-Peterson's work in the kind of way that she talks about how medicalization and the kind of fight right now over uh, retrenching care for access to care for trans kids is like really Mm -hmm. focused with this kind of a historic rewriting of trans kids as new. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think these guidelines rewrite this kind of ideology as new and try to rebrand like the kind of existing um, expand also, I think definitely as a social factor, the kind of existing, perhaps not even subtextual approach to how pediatricians already standardized and approach the kind of norms of interacting Mm -hmm. with childhood and, and the medicalization of obesity it always starts at a young. I mean, I'm like, I, I, how early do they like line kids up to do the like percentile charts? Like, you know, and, and the construction. I remember, of- well, so I, I remember being talked about the percentile charts when I was six or seven. Yeah. Um, and like about the novelty pivot, the, the thing, I think there's like a couple of different things happening because before they were saying watchful waiting, which meant I think that pediatricians should not I don't, I mean, I, I haven't actually looked at it, but you know, before they were doing watchful waiting, but pediatricians were in practice haranguing parents, but there wasn't that I remember there was not a lot beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so I think the idea that now, instead of just haranguing parents, you can send them to a program. Mm -hmm. Maybe is actually a new thing. I think that, you know, the, the thing that really fascinates me about this document is the charts that are like, these are weight associated health issues. And here's the differential diagnosis that you should be looking at. Because to me, that's the care that kids should be getting anyway. And we should be, you know, we should be not blaming weight for health issues until we've ruled everything out. And like, they don't actually say that explicitly in the document, I think, but they have the chart. Mm-hmm. it's just like it's I just don't know what to make of it I mean I, one thing I want to echo is that like I'm a, I'm a little bit younger I think than both of you but I was recommended weight loss surgery like around the time I was like 11 Jesus. you know like this like at least well, yeah 
Um, I mean, it was, <laughs> and you know, what's funny. And I think <laughs> Monica and probably any other fat person may be able to, uh, identify with this, you know, like you have that moment where you look back at pictures of yourself at that point in time and you're just like, I wasn't even fat. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I wasn't even fat. Like what the fuck? I, right. And, uh, I mean, obviously like fatness and and plenty of fat study scholars have talked about this like the reality is that fatness is 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 a relative thing you know mm-hmm. like it's it's about what fatness means in terms of the people you're being compared to right um and i was bigger than most of the kids i was around um as a child but like i look back at pictures of myself and i'm like how could anyone have have recommended an invasive surgical procedure to a child that looks like that. You know, like, that was the piece that I wanted to get into that we haven't gotten into yet was sort of what are the ethics of recommending these potentially permanently life-changing things to children? Yeah. And what are the risks? Because the experiences that I have had with people in my life who have had weight loss surgeries and the adverse effects that they have experienced were not reflected in the sections where they talk about the benefits and harms. Yeah. Um, the risks of alcoholism and suicide, that's a very real thing. Reoperations have to happen. Yeah. Emergency room visits happen. Mm-hmm. Um, osteoporosis and vitamin deficiencies can happen. Right. And it's like, and you know, like the thing about osteoporosis is then you break bone. Right. Is that then like a normal, like I tripped on the dog's leash and fell down. And now somebody has broken their wrist. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I wanted to kind of get a sense of what you both made of this framing of one, the kind of way the risks of this kind of intervention actually like being played down within the framing, but also the kind of idea that like, well, you know, that this is a this is a framework that's supposed to intervene in some way and reduce in a preventative sense. Um, and the idea of these these surgical interventions or pharmaceutical interventions sort of being framed as preventative too. And also sort of mm-hmm. if we could break up this idea that very much is often a part of this of like sort of, as you're saying, taking someone who's maybe, you know, relatively speaking uh, in the doctor's perception considered fat and then trying to like stop them on the road down Toward, you know, that kind of idea yeah. of this being something that needs to be prevented, that we need to be thinking about this as prevented. I think it ties into a lot of the the ideas that I think about often when we talk about curable versus incurable binaries within mm. disability studies and with the idea of kind of incurability as a state of non-life or as a state of medical deprioritization and abandonment. And I think one of the things that's also kind of going on here is that there's some use of the kind of ideas and framings of like social epidemiology and the gaps in research and the gaps in knowledge about causality and prevalence and kind of nods to equity and social determinants and needing to fix these capital E TM equity issues, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, what is also being reinforced in this construction is not just the kind of naturalization of like racial disparities as some kind of like modifier for health outcome, right? Like thinking of these <laughs> things like where we abstract uh, 
these kinds of concepts that have a, a politics to them and that have a political economic relation um, in such a way that kind of divorces them and, and sanitizes them through putting them in this kind of context of like science or medicine. And I think what's going on here is there's a kind of, you know, idea of like establishing the idea of the child with higher weight being in a kind of state of, of reachability for, for prevention mm-hmm. style intervention. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's so funny about just prevention in the, in the sense of this conversation at, in the big document, they literally say like, this guideline does not cover the prevention of obesity, which will be addressed in a forthcoming AAP policy statement. I know. Terrifying. And so what I'm, yeah. Uh-huh. And then they get into all this prevention stuff. Right? Yes, exactly. Because, because, and this is something that I have also tried to explain that pe- in public health that people do not understand. There is absolutely no difference between the treatment and prevention of obesity. There's there's no difference between those two things. Ultimately, because if we understand, as, as this document specifically does, because it frequently mentions the genetic influences involved here. Mm-hmm. Um, if we understand that fat parents give birth to fat kids, then how exactly is there a difference between the treatment of obesity either for a child who will be a future adult future parent um and the prevention of obesity like what what is the what is the actual difference there and so i wonder if whether this forthcoming aap policy statement will be either parent focused or if they'll be mm. recommending certain forms of dieting for children who meet some kind of, you know, standard. Well, maybe they'll be like, oh, well, kids who fall into this specific uh, percentile for BMI should should be um, should should have their eating controlled in in the following ways, you know, or a combination of the two. I'm really dying to see what happens, like in the worst way possible. You think they're going to you think they're going to creep down the threshold for what a problematic body is that needs to be intervened on? I absolutely do. Um, I think that's going to happen. And, and also, I I mean, in the future, I, they say that children under the age of two weren't part of the evidence review for this because it's difficult to practically define and measure adiposity in that age group. But I think babies, well, cause they're fucking babies, but like, but like, also, I think that that's a signal that the the definition and measurement of obesity in that age group is going to become a bigger focus for these these people. I hate to hear that. So we're going to see this renewed interest in what makes a good measurement for fatness. I think that's really an obsession here. Yeah, I think that shows through. Sorry to cut you off. Oh, no, no, no. And I mean, when thinking about that, I I also want to say that like, Something that people usually miss about why the BMI is is bad, like when people say things like the BMI is racist, like they they are specifically making that claim because they're like, oh, well, you know, the index that it was based off of only used like a white male, you know, sample, whatever, blah, 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 blah. You know, like they they're they're referring to the inaccuracy of the measurement and like why it's limited the technical logistical issue yeah but that's mm-hmm. not actually the problem like that doesn't that doesn't matter it's the it is the necessity to measure mm-hmm. fatness mm-hmm. that is like the actual issue that is like the and it's not benign like it's not a benign thing people are just like oh, well what's the problem with like 
when you say like, we shouldn't be using BMI, they're like, well, what do we use instead? And then when you say you shouldn't be using anything, nothing, nothing, stop counting. And they're like, well, how could we just not do that? How could we just not do that? What do you mean? And it's like measuring surveillance for fatness in a population is not benign. No, first of all, no type of surveillance or data collection is benign. That's, that's Mm -mm. just, that's just fucking false period. But like, (laughs) but like, this is one perfect example of how it's not benign. Like the measurement of fatness in children being precise to whatever these people want it to be or reliable in whatever these people want it to be. Meaning that, and for that, I want to, I want to be very clear. Um, one of the only reasons why, one of the main reasons or the real reason why researchers still use BMI, why medicine still uses BMI is because of its ease of use. It's because of feasibility for researchers and for clinical providers. Like it's just because it's easy for them to use. It's not because it's necessarily accurate. It's not because it's necessarily like perfectly correlated to the things they want to look at it with. It's not because of any of that. It's because it's easy to use. Like the feasibility of research and clinical decision-making is what steers what measurements we use, not their accuracy. But if we are going to like evaluate like because they literally say themselves like it is difficult to practically define and measure excess adiposity practically is the operative word here practical for researchers practical for clinical providers they want to come to a consensus on an easy way to determine which kids are fat and which kids are not in children who are under two years old and it may not be relevant and it may not be accurate and it may not be precise and it may not be reliable but as long as it's practical they will use it because they think that it outweighs the costs yeah they think all of the side you know all of the downstream potential negative health consequences that they've imagined are associated with the disease of obesity that they believe is totally real and their problem mm-hmm. to save us all from like they totally fully believe it's real, right? And so, it, and that to them is a bigger boogeyman than the actual consequences of doing highly invasive surgery, which mm-hmm. we have decades of evidence. Here's, go, sorry, go ahead. Here's yeah. the thing: is that you can't, like, they can't conceptualize a fat person with a quality of life at all. So. Yeah even if the worst thing happens, right? Like even if your kid dies on the table, Mm -hmm. at least you weren't negligent enough to let them grow up into a fat adult. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's legitimately what they're saying, what they think. Um, The other piece, there was something else that I wanted to say um, that, you know, kept coming up for me when you were talking about how they're appropriating social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it's like not even that they're appropriating it. It's that they're using it so incompletely because <laughs> weight stigma is also a social or structural determinant of health. Yeah. Right. Like weight stigma is as powerful a force as racism, ableism, misogyny, what, you know, all the big ones, it's up there. And so if you are going to address social determinants, start with the one that's maybe most directly related to the issue that you're trying to talk about question mark <laughs> couldn't possibly because then possibly. they'd have to examine their own role it's like you really know? and i mean like like 
you know, you know, yeah. the silver lining is the silver lining to it all is that they are saying have appropriate chairs for people, have appropriate gowns for people. Okay, okay, wait. Which is not a thing that has ever been paid attention to before. Yeah. But you know, but you know what's so interesting about that? Because I literally wrote a note to myself because I was like, I want to mention this. So they specifically talk about, you know, chairs and gowns and things like uh, medical equipment that were, you know, like is the right size in terms of actions that reduce weight stigma. What? And yeah, yes, it, that those things are mentioned in the. <laughs> oh, I guess mentioned- what? by not putting the person in a publicly embarrassing position, they're going to. Through but the it's grave. the kind of thing. Ugh. Oh no, 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 no! It's the kind of thing that like makes their disinterest in the actual well-being of children and fat people just so apparent. Because if a significant proportion of children are fat, then why don't you already have the things needed to provide them? Not even good care, but just like basic, bare minimum care. The bar is in hell. Like because they don't want them to exist. Because they think yeah. they don't deserve to take up space in the office. And that if they made they may, if they gave that equipment, uh, you know, the kind of accessibility parameters, if they made those investments, that they would be sanctioning something <laughs> that they. Don't believe deserves to to like exist ultimately but now basic medical equipment is somehow some huge stigma reducing thing in this in these guidelines which is just i mean it kind of is though in real life because the I bar mean, is in hell is. i mean it, it is, is because the bar, the bar, is, is, so bar is in hell yeah well, and you see this all the time when it comes to accessibility of uh, exam mm-hmm. and medical equipment, particularly when it comes to folks with mobility disabilities or folks who are in a wheelchair where you have like, you know, no variable height table. And so then transfers become really painful and opportunities to get injured. But I think the mm-hmm. the thing that we so often see is that, and I think that this is a kind of interesting example of it on the sort of... Uh, fat phobia side of of this like medicalization and then the kind of disability intervention we often see is people sometimes proposing well like when we had institutionalization because disabled people were congregated we could provide them with better care and we could do those accessible upgrades because we were just providing care for disabled people over there in this one space and we can't possibly do it (laughs) everywhere And possibly doing it everywhere is often proposed as like the way to increase disability access to medical providers that often is presented in a way that ignores the fact that even if an office is like ADA compliant and has ADA compliant exam, you know, rooms and tables and x-ray equipment and whatever, oftentimes doctors just will not take disabled patients because they think, oh, well, they take longer or they complain, you know, there are these other things on top of it where it's sort of like we often talk about these kind of material interventions, these like consumer um, moments where we see the kind of material iterations of racism and ableism and fat phobia kind of made manifest in the resources within medical settings. But I think one thing that's often so interesting is that that is used as a kind of Almost like by by people who kind of take these ideas and present them incompletely as a way to uphold the status quo, these are kind of used as a, a as a um, almost like a shibboleth of like, well, I'm I'm am t- tapping on equity here, like I'm talking about <laughs> the bare minimum thing that everyone can agree on. So where am, where's my like pat on the back for at least acknowledging that it existed and like it should be an outrage that it's not there in the first place and that should be. 
kind of the position I think we're operating in and approaching this from, not the kind of like idea of like fixing a, a gap is some sort of lever towards equality and the end of stigma for all forever. Like, I think it's very frustrating to see these kinds of bare minimum material demands taken out of that kind of material consequence and kind of the person themselves who's going through these experiences, whether it's inaccessible exam equipment, which obviously is not just a disability issue or like, you know, gowns or whatever. It it takes that person's experience and it like also detaches it from that social and structural expression of of the kind of material austerity of of care. Mm -hmm. You know what's so funny too? It's like on top of this, like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just like, this, this kind of thing makes me like, there has, I think, as you pointed out, this like movement towards acknowledging equity and then breaking it down to these like very specific things that are like material like the like the like the gowns like whatever else and also detaching it from like the social experience of of what inequity means right there is also something is fishy like (laughs) i don't think it's a surprise that there is all of this like weight stigma and equity related language specifically with regard to racism and like the two groups that are focused on a lot in this in these guidelines are well black children foremost and then um, mexican-american children are specifically mentioned in a few places too i don't think it's a surprise that this kind of obesity prevention or treatment as obesity stigma reduction thing is I don't think it's a surprise that that mirrors almost exactly how the weight loss industry has been marketing medications like Wegovy for like the past year or so. Mm-hmm. Like it's all very resonant of the whole it's bigger than me campaign with Queen Latifah and Novo Nordisk where they're like, oh, we're we're going to use Queen Latifah in order to signal that we care about racism and that means that uh, we're going to help fat black people be less fat. Like it's not a coincidence that there is now this movement towards the appropriation of stigma or equity or social determinants of health related language. It's, I think one shows how closely intertwined weight loss industry and medical and public health stuff is together, right? Like these, these domains are using the same kinds of narratives in order to rebrand obesity, obesity treatment and prevention. Um, So it's an example of how closely they are intertwined, but I think it's also an example of just like, (laughs) like this increased interest in tapping into black people as like a market as a population like there's all this weird really weird interest in health equity and one of my favorite like things to point to that talks about this more deeply is a recent is that recent um article from l let and a few other people about like health equity tourism they talk about generally how there is a trend of people who have never been interested in health equity now finding ways to shoehorn their work into that framework now that people are like more aware about racism, more more like more conscious of like how these things work in different domains, like there is now that funders are interested. Yeah, like now that they're now interested, that there's money attached. Now that there's money attached, like they're trying to like they're trying to 
to make inroads in these domains because like that's what's hot right now that's what's trendy you know it's just like when everybody started doing covid research when when they had never fucking asked questions about infectious diseases before you know like it, it's the same thing like everyone's just like oh there's there's a there's grants for covid now i guess i got to include a few questions on my survey about that so i can apply like like what do you <laughs> now that equity is profitable you know that is reflected in the marketing of weight loss medications and also in the ways that medical professionals justify targeting socially marginalized groups that are more likely to be fat because they are. Um, it, it's it's like a means of like sort of circumventing like any accusations about like eugenics, for example. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not it's not we're not we're not targeting them because they're black. We're targeting them because they experience racism. Like, you know, (laughs) like that's what this that's that's like that. That's what's happening now. And it's bizarre. I mean, it's not bizarre. It's like, you know, obviously the result of multiple factors converging to make that the case. But like it's it's really fucking weird to watch. Yeah. And I think it's something that we can often see is the kind of vigor in wanting to sort of study a problem that is very dehumanizing. I think also one thing that's really <laughs> interesting um, about this, too, is there's one section of the recommendations where they talk about this being kind of in line with some recommendations that were released in 2020 by a group of doctors that specifically provides recommendations for obesity in uh, intellectually and developmentally disabled children and for children with psychiatric labels and diagnoses. And, um, you know, one of the things that they're also appropriating here is this WHO uh, ICF framework, which stands for the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, which is this uh, kind of model for collecting data and measuring functioning um, that's supposed to reflect what's called the biopsychosocial model of disability, which is supposed to like blend the medical model and blend the social model and find a happy medium between the medical and the social model. And for a really long time, um, you know, the ICF has been proposed to the United States to uptake this as a kind of uh, way of standardizing the kind of information we collect about disability-oriented and work-limiting health outcomes, more than disability, actually. It's more centered around sort of understanding work-limiting disability as a kind of more gray area matrix, right? An experience more akin to the actual experience. And it's been something that's been adopted globally and in particularly like European health systems. I think the Australian health system uses it as well. Mm -hmm. But it's been this kind of pet project for a lot of kind of disability health equity folks for 10, 15 years now in the United States to try and get um, this adopted in the U.S. And, you know, I think it's not only kind of a moment of elite capture, but I think in a lot of these kind of recommendations that end up getting put together like this that that sort of reflect broadly the needs of like the clinician community or the researcher community more than the patient community. These are things that are unfortunately those kinds of tropes of elite capture that we run into all the time that do sort of seek to take either downstream effects of medicalization or medical neglect or things that are sort of structural and paint them as places where we can make these kind of individual level interventions, right? And this is ultimately a very insidious kind of process of translation that takes 
a kind of problem that we make and naturalizes it into a problem of, you know, uh, decision making and choice. And we all know that the kind of idea of choice and health is a fucking fascist fantasy. And and I think ultimately <laughs> that's the kind of bottom line on these recommendations is not just that they're bad, but that they are part of the construction of this fascist fantasy of health. And that it is particularly, you know, in this moment, in the context of so many different sort of things, both COVID and the kind of ways that this overlaps with risk to COVID and the way that we have pretended that children are somehow impervious to COVID and also celebrated as a nation that people with comorbidities are dying and not people without comorbidities. I mean, I think this is a moment where our idea of health is being challenged as a society. And I think it's threatening to people who, you know, their livelihood really depends on this work. And I mean, this is ultimately the the argument that many anti-psychiatrists made against the profession of psychiatry saying, you know, psychiatrists are never going to want to close the lunatic asylums because it's what keeps them employed at the end of the Mm. day. You know, this is people are like, oh, it's like such a cliche to say it's a problem of capitalism. But like this is a a political economy does factor into so much of what we're talking about here today. Mm -hmm. Thank you both so much. This has been wonderful. Before we go, any final points we wanted to make, final takeaway, bottom line? I really want to make a note about like what fat liberation actually poses as like, you know, well-being promoting mm-hmm. things for fat people. Because like I also want people to understand that like fat liberation is about opposing the way that our structure that our systems and practices and norms are oriented to kill and sicken fat people. Like, that's really what this is about. And so when we think about like, well, what do fat liberationists think is the solution? I mean, it's the same as pretty much any solution to social oppression is. And that's increasing people's ability and rights within society, increasing their ability to live in society and increasing their rights within that society. And so you know, fat liberation is aligned with goals and other movements to, you know, get reparations for black people, to promote universal health care for all people, to amend clinical guidelines like these, you know, that relegate groups to have no choice but to, quote unquote, avoid, right, to maintain their, their not just like their sense of self, Um, but also to just like avoid harm and also is, you know, fat liberation is anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist in nature. And yeah, so I just like wanted to put that out there because I think when we're talking about fat phobia, we get really stuck in the medical context. Yeah, absolutely. like so stuck. And like, there's obviously we've talked about all the really good reasons for that is because medical fat phobia is one of the primary means by which fat people are sickened and killed. But like, it's not just that, you know, it's not just about, for example, I would love to see like people who perhaps practice bariatric surgery, switch teams (laughs) and teach other providers how to work with people who are very fat, how to handle our bodies, how to do surgery. Like it's not just, there's like this complete dearth of understanding of how to work with fat bodies in medicine. Partially it comes from the fact that like 
the bodies that medical students literally train on are there are weight limits on those. Yeah. Um, but like those kinds of things, those kinds of interventions should absolutely happen in medicine. Right. Um, but it's also like we have to change the social world in which these medical changes exist, because if not, then great. We've somehow made providers more capable of treating fat people well and also within within like the line of what evidence is but like what happens if like we still manage to like we manage to do those medical changes but we don't actually like stop employment discrimination <laughs> for fat people if we don't like you know talk about how hostile architecture really makes it hard for fat people to be in public places absolutely like you know like there's like all of these other things and I would encourage people to consider how fat people are also impacted by the same things that marginalize other groups and keep other groups out of public life. Absolutely. So well said, Mikey. And I think it's important to underline that, like, you know, what we were talking about today, part of why I kind of forwarded like, OK, we need to we're, we're talking about this very narrowly within the context specifically of kind of medical authority and these guidelines, mm-hmm. as I think so often you know, people will hear kind of ideas from disability justice or fat liberation um, sort of in the context of public health critiques and think like, okay, well, that's where it stops, right? Like it stops Mm -hmm. here. And I really appreciate you making sure to include that because this is not like an episode on fat liberation. This is like a fat Mm -hmm. liberationist public health teardown of some really (laughs) bullshit uh, recommendations. And I I wonder if a final point, because Monica, you and I have talked about this at length, and about our frustrations with the ways that Medicare for All is talked about from a perspective mm. that seems completely uh, just clueless that fat people even exist. Um, would you be down to sort of make or or uh, rehearse some of the arguments that we've talked about and some of the ways that we've talked about needing to think about and talk about, you know, beyond these kind of individual ideas about medical authority and care and who deserves care, that this is also an idea that that we need to start really trying to think about in terms of public policy at the kind of health finance scale, too, not just in the clinician relationship um, one-on-one yeah. or at that level. I mean, this whole document honestly really feels like it's making the argument for more reimbursement for this stuff for kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. what it feels like this document is kind of more for. or higher. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, so what I think we've talked about is that if Medicare for all were implemented today in the United States as it is, um, fat people would still just be up a creek because the whole architecture that we've talked about of denying people care based on BMI is pretty well endorsed by our payment system, but is itself kind of payment agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that just as much as it happens under our for-profit healthcare system right now, it could definitely continue to happen under any kind of publicly owned setup. And this is something that also I think it's not enough to think about socialism or capitalism without thinking about all the other things that intersect. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would add to that is that this is one of the reasons why on this show we are very specific by saying it is a fucking mistake 
to say that we want Medicare for all because it costs less. Because Mm -hmm. if we do that, we are creating a single payer system that will not only antagonize fat people and exclude them, but will codify into the financial regime of how we think about, value, distribute, and pay for care this fundamental idea that fat people must be policed in order to reduce costs for the whole society, right? And Mm -hmm. so this is one of the really important reasons why we're so specific about this on Death Panel and not. I don't get a chance to sort of talk about this in context often because this is really important and really central to some of the ideas, especially in health communism, where we think and talk about how the economic valuation of life is such an important thing to challenge across all sorts of policy arenas, because this is really how often, you know, anti, anti-fatness anti is sort of uh, justified on the cost-benefit ledger, right? As we say, well, it reduces the capacity for negative health outcomes, and therefore, you know, all of these horrible yeah. things are justified in order to reduce costs and prevent the system from being wasteful. And that's ultimately a policy judgment that you're going to put on the ledger of our entire health system that fat people are a waste. And as leftists, you should not be advocating for policy that way. That's just my personal opinion, but it's also the correct opinion about how to approach things like universal programs, like Medicare for All. We have to, as Monica's saying, we have to consider the kind of broader implications of policy beyond the kind of immediate uh, common sense understanding of what they're for and who they're for. Well, and even when you think about like the costs of fat people's health care, like there are assumptions being made about the quality of that health care and mm-hmm. what we're paying for that are like not borne out in reality. So like fat people will get accused of doctor shopping. Well, if the first doctor I go to says eat less and lose more, you know, or eat less and move more. And I say, I tried that. Do thin people ever have this problem? What do you do for them? And he says, go fuck yourself. (laughs) There is nothing I can do. You know, like I cannot force a doctor to engage the diagnostic mindset. I cannot force a doctor to refer me to an appropriate specialist if I don't know what the appropriate specialist is. If I actually need someone's clinical judgment to help me, I can't force them to do that. And so, yeah, fat people end up doctor shopping. Mm -hmm. Um, or if you think about like, like fat people need more care, fat people present with more advanced issues. Like, again, why wouldn't I wait and see if something's going to get better before I go pay a copay to get told that I'm fat, which I already know. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so the things that people think they know about what fat people's healthcare costs, not accurate. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most important Just like the final series of thoughts that I was having. <laughs> no, I think this is one of the most important things to remember. And and I just want to remind folks that in that classic Atul Gawande piece that became required reading during the Obama administration that said that the problem with healthcare access was overutilization. That came with an illustration of a patient with a gigantic, like I think it was like a one million dollar bill. And they were like wrapped up in bandages and had crushes. And it was a fat man in the illustration, right? So like when we think about these ideas, mm-hmm. like reducing costs of our healthcare system, of that being a real rallying cry for uniting the population behind health finance reform, like, fuck you, no. 
Like that is a anti-fat Obama era shit lib tactic. And we can do way better than that. So much better. And like also all these interventions that they want fat people to do, how much are those costing? Mm -hmm. You know, like, like how much of the cost of fat people's care is us being charged for like advice that doesn't work? Yeah. No, I think these are all such important points. And this is why I so appreciate both of your work and the dialogue that we've been able to be in today and the fact that you both took all this time to go through and read some of this awful bullshit with me. (laughs) I deeply appreciate it. You know, I know we do it all the time on this show, but it is always hard for me to ask someone to do it with me. You know, I feel bad and I always appreciate some solidarity when I have to read uh, horrible things like, you know, that really the problem is that people are avoiding going to the doctor. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I just wanted to say, like, I actually really appreciated this, this like very specific opportunity to talk about this because I've almost been like scared to look at these, like Mm -hmm. to look at these Uh guidelines. Like I remember (laughs) when I first saw the, like, I've been like sort of consumed by like qualifying exams and stuff for the past few weeks. But um, when I logged onto Twitter just randomly one day and saw the headlines about this, it was like, I just immediately felt like that burning in my chest, you know, Mm -hmm. like that you experience whenever you're just like, fuck, this is going to make things so much harder for so many people. Um, And so, yeah, I, I really appreciated getting to talk about this with you and with Monica, because it's, easier to do when you're not just like reading it and freaking out by yourself (laughs) (laughs) very true yeah (laughs) very true i've had a lot of fun me too (laughs) i have also had a lot of fun (laughs) mikey monica thank you so much for joining me today and lending your expertise to the death panel to help me rip this thing up and sort of (laughs) walk through some of these terribly painful ideas, but it has actually been a wonderful pleasure to talk about this with both of you, and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for making space for this really important conversation. Yeah, anytime. Please come back anytime. And if you want to follow Mikey, she is on Twitter at Marquisel, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E-L-E. And Monica is at Fatty, M-P-H, F-A-T-T-Y, M-P-H. I'm going to link to both of the pipe wrench pieces that they wrote for the fat issue last year because they're fantastic essays and link to both of their websites and to Unsolicited Fatty's Talk Back, which again is the podcast that Mikey co-hosts, which is fantastic and I highly recommend. (laughs) So with all of the plugs out of the way, um, thank you both again. It has been wonderful to have you join me today. I really appreciate it. And patrons will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs>